If you have your Bibles in front of you, and I hope you do, turn to Romans chapter 1. We began our study of this book uh, just last week, actually. As I mentioned at the beginning of Paul's introduction to this letter, not only that it was a little bit longer than his typical introduction, but it was also much more complex, okay? With Paul not being the one who actually started this church and also never having ever visited this church, it's certainly possible that this might have something to do with the amount of information uh, that he provided, which would usually be just a simple greeting. But he goes, of course, way beyond that. Therefore, look back with me, if you will, at verses 1 through 4. And notice the first thing that Paul does here is that he starts this letter uh, as to state, I guess what I would call his position. He simply says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, I do realize this might sound simple. It might be something that we would typically just, you know, read on through. But I believe to Paul, being a servant of Jesus Christ was the most important declaration, okay? It's just no different than it be. It should be uh, for me and you. I serve Christ. If there's anything that we should stand on, if, if there's any time that we stand on our proverbial soapbox, we should declare, I serve Christ. Now, for Paul, by declaring his servanthood, not only was He's showing his humility, but Paul is making it clear that he has placed himself under the headship of Jesus Christ. It is he whom I serve, and therefore, as I write this letter, it is he uh, who guides me in what I write, the doctrines that I discuss, the theology that I share. It's all bound up in the position that I hold. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I believe it is that important to Paul. Now, even though uh, Paul speaks of this first, right, him being in submission to Christ, on the flip side, he follows that up by now stating his position of authority, right? First, it was a servant, but now his position of authority. Notice he says that he was called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now in Acts chapter 9 as well as in Acts chapter 26, it makes it very clear that Paul was personally called by Christ himself to be an apostle and therefore he was sent out, hence the word apostolos, he was sent out to share the gospel. Paul was literally handpicked by the Lord himself to use the same zeal that he once used to oppose Christ to now get out there and share with the world that Jesus came and he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again from the grave and calling people to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ in faith. If you know the zeal that Paul had prior to that, go back and read Acts 9 or Acts 26, use that same thing to share the gospel 
And when you go back and say, read the book of Acts, I know Dave said he was reading the book of Acts. When you go back and read the book of Acts and, and, and any other, lots of places actually throughout the New Testament, I would say that Paul absolutely remained faithful to that calling until his dying day. You always saw the zeal that Paul had to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, after mentioning the word gospel there in verse 1, which you and I know means good news, right? Paul decides to make it very clear to this church that his message, the good news that he is now spreading, is not something new, okay? Matter of fact, it is actually consistent with what he calls the Holy Scriptures, and as I've said before, I always want to make sure I say this again. When you see those kinds of words in the New Testament, scriptures, holy scriptures, it's talking about what you and me would call the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament then. It wasn't written. So when he says it's consistent with the holy scriptures, you and I would say, well, that would be what we know as the Old Testament. Okay? And so he says here, in verse 2, he said that I was set apart for the gospel of God. He says the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, because Paul had been previously accused of turning people away from Moses, away from the law, away from the prophets, okay? Remember, Moses preached that we are saved by grace through faith, right? Not by works of the law. It says a dozen times in the New Testament, we are not under the law. We are not under the law. Because of that, people felt that Paul was, uh, you know, throwing Moses and the law under the bus, and so he's making it clear at this point that the message he is teaching is directly in line with what was taught already by the prophets of God. Okay? The prophets have already discussed what he is about to share. Now, when it does come to this subject matter, when it does come to, uh, I guess, if you will, Christ in the Old Testament, we don't hear about that subject matter very often, okay? So what Paul says here is really an important reminder, I think, to the church today, and that is that the Messiah, the anointed one that we see in the Old Testament, was first spoken of in the Hebrew Scriptures, I know we understand this by saying the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. But they're written by the same God and they work together. Okay? That's important we understand that. One flows into the other. So, some people used to say the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Okay? They work together. Okay, they work together. I'll read a couple of scriptures from you for you. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. He said, he, he said, talking to the people on the road to Emmaus, who didn't get it, who didn't understand what in the world just took place. This, we thought he was the Messiah. Why did Jesus die? And of course, Jesus meets them and he says, well, how foolish are you? Like you picture somebody getting their head slapped around. 
How slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So kind of choose a mount for not knowing the Hebrew scriptures concerning the coming of the Messiah. He says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? As if to say, well, don't you know this? And so what he does, he begins using Moses and the prophets and explain to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. It's, as, it, it's almost as if we can picture Jesus having an Old Testament scripture there, right? It says, turn with me to Isaiah, right? Turn with me to Psalm 22. Turn, and that's what he did. He went back to the scriptures to talk about himself. See, one more in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, verses 30 we know this from the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. He's there and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip says um, in verse 30, do you, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? In other words, no, I need someone to explain it to me, right? And so he invited Philip up there. And what does he do? He starts reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Bear in mind, folks, they're reading Isaiah. The eunuch said to Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is Isaiah talking about himself, or is he talking about somebody else? And check it out. Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus Christ. Or, if you will, he told them the good news about the coming Messiah, about who already did come at this point. See? So this is what he's talking about here. He's saying that, that Paul is teaching what the prophets have already talked about. It, it's nothing new. It's not of himself. It's simply the word of God revealed. It's fulfilled at this point. Okay? Now, what those prophets have taught, he says, was concerning whom he calls God's Son. Notice verses 3 and 4. He just got through saying, talking about what God promised to the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And now he says, regarding his Son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying here, the Jesus that you and I know, the Jesus that walked this planet 2,000 years ago, in whom the Gospels describe in detail, he says that he was both human, right? His humanity, his human nature. He says he was a descendant of David, and he was also, he says, divine. Notice he was declared to be the Son of God. Okay? Theologians like to use the term 
hypostatic union. This is the hypostatic union. It comes from the Greek word hypostasis. It simply is talking about the fact that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. Okay? Now, humanly speaking, Jesus fulfilled prophecy by being born into this world in the lineage of David, which is what he just said. Now, the Old Testament said that it would happen. I gave you all of those scriptures last week. And even prior to his birth, the angel said it would happen. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He said the Lord would give him the throne of his father, David. And then, of course, as you know, the genealogies also make it clear as well. Jesus, being in very nature God, came into this world in human likeness. And that's using the words of Philippians chapter 2. He's God, yet he came into this world and took upon him flesh. That's why we call it the incarnation Carne means meat or flesh. He came as flesh and bones. See? Paul also says, in addition to being the son of David, and that speaks of his humanity, right? Verse 3. He also was declared to be the son of God. Verse 4. And that, of course, is talking about his deity. Okay? Now understand, folks, Jesus has always been, in his very nature, God. Do we understand that? One thing it's easy to remember are these passages of Scripture. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. Okay? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Very easy to go back and to see those. Okay? But he's always been God. See? But coming to this earth, okay, which is what we just spoke of, and submitting himself to the Father... He took the title of the Son of God. He's still God, but now he is submitting himself to the Father. While on this earth, he is now considered to be the Son of God. And as Paul says right here in verse 4, that was verified beyond all doubt. By what? What did he say? The resurrection from the dead. Okay? Jesus did what he said he would do. And that would be rise again. He defeated death while doing it. It's kind of both sides. He said, I would rise, and he did. But he defeated death. We're in the scripture, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It isn't, <laughs> you see, proving who he claimed to be, and that is God in human flesh. And that, of course, is why Paul closed with that statement there in verse 4. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is basically telling the church at Rome, understand that's who I'm talking about. Right there. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Born human, yet fully God. Now, moving into verse 5 this morning. Speaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Paul continues by saying in verse 5, Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from 
faith. So after mentioning the gospel, he mentions the gospel in verse 1 as well as in verse 2. And then in addition to that, as I just said, he speaks of Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Whom he calls the resurrected Christ, right? What Paul does now is he goes back to his calling of sharing that very message, right? That's what he shares, the gospel, the gospel of Christ, that Christ died, was buried, what rose from the grave, the good news, that's the good news. So he goes back to talking about his calling to share it. And so starting here in verse 5, he says, I do this through him and for his sake. Now, for some of you, you might have a different translation, and for his sake is put at the end of the verse. Okay, if you're kind of wondering, I don't read that. But he says he does this through him, through Christ, and for his sake. Now, as we discussed last week, looking at verse 1, it was absolutely through Christ that Paul was in the position that he was. Okay, If it was up to Paul... As you can see from Acts chapter 9, Paul would have continued his endeavor of not just opposing Jesus Christ, but also persecuting the, his followers, persecuting the church. Remember that? He also had some arrested. Some were also killed. If Paul was let to go his own way, that's what he would have continued to do. But through Christ, or if you want, you can say on account of Christ, that didn't happen. Because he had another plan. In Acts chapter 26, verses 15 and 16, he is on the road to Damascus, as we know, doing his thing. A light shines around him. Paul says, Who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 16. He says to, to Paul, who's actually his name was Saul at that time, now get up and stand on your feet. Listen, I have appeared to you, why? To appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 9, Jesus says that you are my chosen instrument. Okay, this was all Jesus, no Paul. Jesus says, I got a plan for you, and this is what it is, okay? And so there's no question that everything that has taken place was through Christ. He had a plan, and Paul was that man who was going to fulfill it. And we can see it piece by piece there in Acts 9, as well as when he shares it again to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 28, kind of him sharing his testimony, okay? But don't also miss how he says it's for his name's sake, or you can also say for the sake of his name, okay? The New Living Translation says bringing glory to his name, which is really the principle of what he's talking about here. What Paul did, what Paul shares, what Paul witnesses is for the sake, is for the name of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because it points back to him. Okay? 
It points back to, as Kenneth Weiss says, to his majesty, to his glory, his power, his holiness and righteousness. He says it's his name. That's the representation there. The Lord wants Paul to proclaim his name and promote his cause because everything goes back to Christ. We should know that. Everything goes back to him. The message is never about Paul. No different than the message is never about you and me. The message is never about Discover Church. The message is never about a denomination or some system of theology. We don't sing songs about us. It's for the sake of his name, period. That's what it's all about. We point people to Jesus, you see. It's very, very important. Now, to expand on that, still in verse 5, Paul says, through him and for him, we received grace and apostleship. Now, there are a couple things to point out here. Some of you might have just noticed when I just read those words that he uses the word we. Did you see that? We receive grace and apostleship. Now, is Paul including others that maybe he has done in the past? Is he, is he thinking of Silas? Is he, is he thinking of Timothy or, or maybe, maybe somebody else? And being that they're not apostles, at least in the formal sense, he's probably not. Because they're not apostles, right? He said we received grace and apostleship. He's probably not talking about those guys. Secondly, when using the word we, maybe he's speaking about the apostles as a whole. We apostles, we received apostleship. Once again, chances are not because notice the intended people that they're talking to, he says, are all the Gentiles. Okay? Now, certainly any apostle at his own will could be dedicated, who was dedicated, let's just say, to sharing with the Jews, could certainly share Jesus Christ with the Gentiles. We know that. But Paul here is talking about a specific calling to the Gentiles. And as far as we know, through all of Scripture, he was the only apostle called to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. Okay, therefore, I hate to tell you this, but I'm not going to solve the problem. But therefore, even though we don't really know for sure, most scholars call it a literary or a writer's plural. I, I know I, have, I myself have written things where I mean me, but I say we. I've done that myself. Okay, so in this case, uh, he uses the plural, but it's probably speaking of himself. Okay, so it's Nothing you have to go too far off. You don't have to go nuts figuring who out, who, who else is this we? I want to know. It's probably not anybody, okay? The second point to make here is the use of, what does he say? We received grace and apostleship. Now, please understand, this is not a big to-do, okay? Nothing has changed in the text. Nothing is affected by saying what he said, but many people who are smarter than me are divided over this. Is grace and apostleship two things, or is it one? 
Yes, folks, you can read books on that. <laughs> I know, because I've read some of them. I've read part of some of them anyway. Is grace and apostleship, is that two points, or is it one point? Well, is he talking about, is he talking about the grace that was given to him in salvation? And then talk about him adding to that his calling to be an apostle, right? Grace and salvation, the calling to be an apostle. Is that what he's talking about? Or, as this can also be translated, is it the grace of apostleship? Grace also means gift. Is it just the grace of apostleship? Now, listen, both of these statements are true fully, if you want to look at it that way. In and of themselves, everything's true, okay? Now, as far as the first one is concerned, if you think of Acts chapter 9, I've mentioned it a few times, you can certainly see how uh, uh, God's grace in salvation and then Paul's calling to be an apostle, because they're so close, they're right there in the same text, that maybe he just mentions them together. When you go back to Acts 9 and start reading it, you see his calling. You see Jesus appearing to him. You see him meeting Ananias, and then you see Jesus giving him his calling. Whew, it's all there. Maybe he just looks at it as one event, and that, I mean, who knows, or two. But that being said, I personally would hold to the latter. I believe Paul is speaking about the grace that was given to him, which was his calling to be an apostle. The grace or the gift that was given to Paul was the gift of apostleship, okay? In this specific context, um, it's hard to see why Paul would bring up the fact that he was a man who was saved by grace. Is it true? Of course it is. But I, I have a hard time seeing that in this context. Plus, you also have another text here in, in uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. And I think it says it well. Let me just read it for you. Paul says, talking to the Roman church, I have written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me, listen, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that you Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Folks, when you read that, the grace that God gave him, as he then explained, is the office of an apostle. In that very text, he talks about that's the grace that was given him to do what he did. And of course, he even explained what he does. And it was, it was the office of apostle. Okay, So I believe here he's blessed by the grace of God to have this apostle. Ship. No calling of his own, absolutely all of God. Now, after that, go back to verse 5 again. He says, Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship. He says, To call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So once again, you see two points here. Okay, at the end there of verse 5. Number one, Paul tells the church that his calling, that his focus was to reach the Gentiles. Okay, now I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we do not know who wrote, well, I shouldn't say, we don't know who started the church in Rome. 
We know that it's certainly a possibility that it might have been the Jews from Rome, okay? If you go back, you don't have to do this now, but if you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 10, right? Pentecost is taking place. It says right there, the Jews from Rome came for Pentecost. They obviously, as we know, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and went back to Rome. So there's certainly a possibility that that is their first bringing up and the starting, if you will, of the church in Rome. But that being said, though, Rome is predominantly Gentile, okay? And therefore, the church would be as well. Okay, I mentioned last week that he talks to some, some Jews, there are some Jews in the church, but it's predominantly Gentile. Matter of fact, right here in chapter 1, verse 13, Romans chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now. Paul says, I really wanted to come. I just, I, I haven't been able to. But he says, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Right? So he's writing in this letter, he just says, you Gentiles. Later in chapter 11, verse 13, he says very simply, I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. So he states it very clearly. I'm writing to you Gentiles. Guess what? I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And of course, he proclaimed that also in Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. You guys might remember this. He said, for God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews... He said, guess what? He was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Okay? Now, with this being said, listen, folks, this is important. With that being said, this is the focus was on the Gentiles. But listen, Paul would share the gospel with anybody who would hear him. Okay? I kind of joked about that when, uh, as we're thinking about Paul when, when he was being held in Rome, imprisoned, right? And uh, you find that in Acts 28. And you have him chained to a Roman guard. And those Roman guards would change out so often. I'll guarantee you, every one of them heard the gospel. <laughs> Paul was not going to sit there and, and not share Christ with these people, okay? So Paul would share the gospel with what, whoever would listen, okay? That's important we know that. His calling, though... God's calling for Paul was to reach the Gentiles. But he also understood that the Jew needed forgiveness of sin no different than the Gentiles. Okay? And therefore, anyone who wanted to hear about Jesus, Paul would share. But his point, though, was to reach the Gentiles. And I, I hope that, that using this as an opportunity, that we understand that as well. Okay? Not as much Jew and Gentile. Okay, but for us, you know, whether somebody is poor or whether they're affluent, whether somebody is black or white or Hispanic or Asian or I don't care where they're from, whether this is a, your really nice neighbor or it's the jerk on the other side of you, okay, we don't pick and choose who we think should share the gospel with. Now, some of those are definitely easier than others. 
Maybe it's a, a cultural thing. Maybe it's a personality thing. But we don't just say, I'm going to share Christ with them, but I'm not going to share Christ with them. I say that, folks, because, yeah, we do that. You, yeah, you listen? We do that sometimes. We might not think about it. Well, I don't want to go up to him. He, 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 he looks homeless. Well, he, he's much easier. He's, he's wearing a suit and tie. He's probably on break from his lunch, right? And so, I mean, we, we do those kinds of things. And obviously, opportunities arise, not every single time to share Christ. But the point, the point I'm saying is, when the opportunity arises, it's not, we don't pick and choose who that may be with. But sometimes we do that. And, and I, I challenge you, watch. Watch yourself. It's important we don't. Lastly, here in verse 5, and also a very good, important point, he says, they received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles, listen, to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, depending on your translation, this may come across as in obedience to the faith, or in other words, to obey the gospel. Okay? Or it may come across as an obedience from the faith, simply meaning obedience which comes from genuine saving faith. Okay? Good men agree to disagree on that issue. But what we cannot what we cannot disagree on is that the design of the gospel is to not only obey it. Okay? The design of the gospel is to not just obey it, okay, and simply say yes and call it a day. That is, that is nowhere to be found. Now, without question, you do have to say yes to the gospel, yes to what Jesus Christ has, has done for you. There's no question. But what is that faith worth if it does not continue in obedience? See, we have this dilemma today. You have a lot of people in, in going into what I would call cheap grace. I want to just accept this, believe this, and say, okay, I'm done. I call it a day. But what kind of faith is it if you don't continue in obedience. Let me just put it this way. Jesus isn't looking for believers. Jesus is looking for followers. Understand? The reformers used to have the statement, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but the faith that saves never comes alone. Okay? Did you guys grasp that? You're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but the faith that saves you will never come alone. Matter of fact, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, listen to this, created in Christ for good works. Do you hear that? which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's not just a yes to the gospel. It's not just obeying the gospel and saying yes. See, 
Someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but it is not lived out, there is no desire, if you will, for obedience. They have a faith that is dead and it is useless. Well, Darren, that's kind of a bold statement. You're right, it is, but I didn't actually make it. James did, right? James 2.7 says, in the same way, do you want, I'm sorry, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. Three verses later, chapter 2, verse 20, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Useless? I mean, folks, he started that entire section there in James in verse 14 by asking a question. Here's the question. James says, what good is it? Think about that. What what good is it, my brothers, if somebody claims to have faith, but he has no deeds, right? He says, can such faith save him? What does he he mean, Darren? What, what, What kind of faith is he talking about? Well, he just said it right? He just said it. A faith that has no deeds. He says, can such faith save him? Meaning a faith that has no deeds. Can that happen? A faith that has no works. A faith that has no obedience. That's what he's saying. He says, can such faith save him? And of course, the implied answer in James is no. What many uh, people call the Great Commission, right? You all heard that before. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do you guys know that? Yeah? But you know, there's no period there, though. We, we, we kind of stop just as if that's it. No, there's a comma, actually, and it says, and teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. Really? It says that? Yeah, because nobody ever quotes that part. They just stop in the middle of the verse. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Folks, even the day that we stand before Jesus Christ, and we all will, and I have talked about this many times before, so this should not be a surprise to anybody. Matthew chapter 7, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Listen, but I grind this into people's minds. People will stand before Christ one day. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, as if you're going to come up to Christ, Lord, it's me. I'm here. He says, not everyone who says or claims or professes, whatever word you want to use, whatever comes out of your mouth, just because it comes out of your mouth, he says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you claim or say, Lord, doesn't mean you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. But he says, only he who does the will of my Father. That's obedience, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'll answer it for you. The one who does the will of my Father. He says, Lord, Lord, but he follows, he does, he obeys. 
Now listen, very important. I am not talking about faith plus works equals salvation. I know you probably know that, but I'm not talking about that because that would be heresy. Okay? It's Jesus plus nothing. A proper response to the gospel is faith alone in Christ alone. But it's a faith that produces works. It's a faith that is verified by obedience. Okay? The evidence of your faith, the proof of your faith, is obedience. Anybody can say, hey, I have faith. Well, so what? Anybody. And, and trust me, millions do. Millions do. Matter of fact, right here in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, it's actually where we'll begin next week. Romans 1, 8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Listen, because your faith is being reported all over the world. So let me ask you this question. Is he saying that all over the world people know that they put their faith in Jesus? Is he saying that people all over the world simply heard, hey, I heard you became a Christian? Is that what he is saying? Well, I think Paul is going to back me up on this. No. It's, I mean, is it possible? Sure, it's possible. But I would say they heard their faith at work. They heard that their faith was being lived out. They know there's a change in those people. Paul says later in, in chapter 16, verse 19, everyone has heard about your obedience. He says, I am full of joy for you. So it wasn't just that they heard about their faith as if it's just static. Oh, hey, yeah, I heard some people in Rome became Christians. He, he's talking about, he heard about their faith at work, right? He heard about their obedience. He's hearing the action of the faith, not just, I believed. See? To quote John Stott, he says, the response Paul looked for, meaning when Paul talks about sharing the gospel to the Gentiles, the response Paul looked for was a total unreserved commitment to Jesus Christ. Okay? If you want to put this in a context for you and me today, Paul was not looking for someone to walk an aisle. Paul was not looking for someone who would repeat his prayer. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible to get saved by doing so, but we live in a world today where people think because you did that, you're saved. That is definitely not the case. How many people will say, Lord, Lord, because they repeated a prayer or walked an aisle? See, Paul says here he is looking for what? The obedience that comes from faith. See, going into verse 6, Paul now directs his attention specifically to the Roman church. I'll make this quick. I'll read verses 5 and 6. But once again, he says, through him, meaning Jesus Christ, and for his name's sake, 
we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are being called or who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So basically, even though Paul himself had nothing to do with their salvation, Paul was not involved in any way, it's, it, it's almost as if he kind of rejoices with them. He's basically just giving a statement of fact here. Okay, He's saying they too, they also were a part of God's calling. In other words, they heard the gospel and they obeyed it. And as I just read a minute ago from chapter 16, people know that they're living it out. They're a part of this. They are examples, if you will, of the fruit that has come from the advancement of the gospel. That's what happens, he's saying, when people are sharing Christ. They are what's taking place. They are the fruit of that labor. People are coming to faith, trusting in Jesus, and living an obedient life. And lastly, closing out in verse 7, he says, something you'd probably think would be read in verse 1, but now he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul closes out his introduction here by addressing them as saints. God loves you, and he calls them saints. Now, folks, please remember, as I have said before, grind this into your head, the word saints there, hagias in the Greek, very closely related to hagiazo, okay? Hagiazo is holy, sanctified, right? Hagias is the word saint, holy ones, Okay, it just comes from the same word. In other words, he's talking about Christians, people who've been born again. He's talking about the church. The church, the true born-again believers, are saints. Okay? They are not some made-up extra-biblical or a special group of people that false religions like to talk about. Well, they did something really cool, so we're going to make them saints. If they know Christ as Lord and Savior, they are one. Okay? It's like when people say, you want to pray for Darren, Lord, that you would anoint him as he preaches today? You don't need to pray that. I'm already anointed because John 5 tells me the anointing is the Holy Spirit. I already got it. <laughs> we already all are saints. The, the, the church at Rome, he calls them saints. It just means you're a Christian. And so Paul is saying very simply to you saints, to you Christians in the city of Rome, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now to a certain degree, to a certain degree he already has. But hopefully, I'm sure more so as they read this letter, because they got a lot going on. There's a lot that's going to be said in these chapters. But the word grace is the word charis, okay? That's where the word charismatic comes from. It's charis. It can also be translated as gift. It can also be translated as goodwill or favor, okay? And therefore, it speaks of the kindness of God towards undeserving people, okay? 
Sometimes we use the term, the gift of salvation, right? That's grace, charis, okay? It's God granting to us, to you and me, to the church at Rome, to any believer in Christ, what we do not deserve. That's grace. Peace, then, can be looked at the other side Having God's goodness, having his grace bestowed on me, I will have peace with God. Because of God's grace, I can now have peace with God. Because of his grace, we all have peace. That is Paul's desire for these people as he ends his introduction. And as I said before, somewhat of a complex, a little more complex introduction than most of the others, if you look back at some of the other letters. But uh, Paul discussed a lot of things, being a servant, being an apostle, mentioned the gospel, mentioned how it was preached of by the prophets in the Old Testament, mentioned the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ, and mentioned him preaching to all the Gentiles, talked about the obedience that comes from faith. I mean, it was, that was just his intro. And next week, we will pick up on verse 8 and continue uh, to study for, I'm sure, a little while. Okay, let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you that we uh, had the time today, that we set apart the time today to go through the Scripture. Lord, this, uh, this book, um, I am not, not that I ever have, but I'm not going to go quickly through um, Lord, there's just a lot being said, and I believe for myself, for others, there's a lot that we can learn. There's maybe a lot that we can be reminded of. We need to know these things, Lord, for us to understand you, to understand your word, we need to know the details of the scriptures. And so, Lord, teach us week by week and even day by day as we dig into the scripture to learn what you have to say, and historically to learn what you had to say to the church in Rome, and to see what we can pull from that, what we can learn from that. And then little by little, as we go through our days, we continue to see what sanctification is. It's a process of being made holy. And we, Lord, we know that can take place through your word. And so we pray that today and, and all the weeks ahead that you would use what we've learned to transform us to be more like your son. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.